Welcome to You Only Guide Me by Surprise, a suite of sonic somnambulism for those interested in poetry, peripety, magic, or mystery. I'm Landry Ayers. It is 100 minutes to midnight. In almost 75 years, only six or so minutes have passed. The hands march unsteadily, sputtering and stumbling through time, occasionally falling backward. But still, time ticks, and we stare through a glass darkly and at the clock's face. Yes, we must all get ready now, so we know how to save ourselves if the atomic bomb ever explodes near us. First, you have to know what happens when an atomic bomb explodes. It looks something like this. Brighter than the sun, brighter than anything you've ever seen. When there is a flash, duck. No matter where we live, in the city or the country, we must be ready all the time for the atomic bomb. Be sure and remember what Bert the Turtle just did, friends, because every one of us must remember to do the same thing. That's what this film is all about. Duck and cover. This is an official civil defense film produced in cooperation with the Federal Civil Defense Administration and in consultation with... The Though the apocalypse has never been closer, our relationship to its agents has shifted from one of consistent, ever-present dread to dull ambivalence and even slight admiration. The bomb itself is even revered, if fearfully, a mythic force of awesome scale and scourge. J. Robert Oppenheimer compared himself to a destructive god when he observed what he and his fellow scientists had created. In this case, meaning nuclear Armageddon and the end of humanity. Many of them went on to found the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, the symbolic order who takes it upon themselves to warn of our impending doom. In January 2017, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists revealed that the clock ticked 30 seconds closer than last year to the end of times, and cited, among other things, climate change, cybersecurity, nuclear weapons, and Donald Trump's causes. More orders exist as well many of them with their own take on atomic doctrine. Three peace activists. An octogenarian nun, a house painter, and a Vietnam vet. Who infiltrated a nuclear weapons site. <laughs> An octogenarian nun. Who infiltrated a nuclear weapons site. Now face the possibility of lengthy sentences in federal prison. Atomic bombs had been used for the first time in 1945, killing 130,000 residents of the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I want to be here because of my belief in a nuclear-free future. Langsdorff and other concerned scientists founded the Bulletin two years prior. 
feeling a responsibility to warn and educate the public about the possibly disastrous consequences of their creations. I was reading a book called Underland, A Deep Time Journey. Its author, Robert McFarlane, devotes an entire chapter in this book to how we deal with the leftover ingredients from our atomic cocktails. He mentions in passing a story about a group I had never heard of that instantly captured my attention. It's about a secret society established by scientists in the shadow of immense weaponry. A group of secret keepers and cultural preservationists. A sort of circle of mages charged with keeping the old magics locked away. It sounds like a type of prophecy you would hear in fantasy novels, but it really is true. They've been known by many names. The Order of the Elephant's Foot. The Knights Nuclear. The Children of Adam. But their focus is singular. Their god a part of us all. They are the atomic priesthood. Europe was under siege. The Germans had conquered Poland, Czechoslovakia, Belgium, France. By 1941, the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor. We were surrounded by our enemies. In response, a team of scientists was secretly gathered at Los Alamos, New Mexico. Their mission? To construct the ultimate weapon. The bomb left 200,000 dead or injured. Within two weeks, the Japanese had surrendered. But there was no end to the arms race. The A-bomb gave way to the H-bomb. By 1954, we had a nuclear navy. A nuclear-powered ship was fueled by a small-scale nuclear reactor. An expanded reactor could generate commercial electricity. The atom could be used to benefit rather than destroy. The possibilities seemed limitless. Today, atomic scientists produce radioactivity in large amounts. Experts predicted electricity would become so cheap it would no longer need to be metered. Now, man could control the breakup of the atom. Radioactivity and radioactive materials have many peacetime uses. Power, research, agriculture, medicine. Radiation improves safety. Radiation helps make better products. But both weapons production and the expansion of nuclear power were leaving us with dangerous but unavoidable byproducts. The most radioactive of these would be known as high-level nuclear, nuclear waste. waste. The radioactive and toxic byproducts from making nuclear energy and weapons is something nobody wants. There are more than 71,000 tons of nuclear waste stranded at the nation's 104 reactors. The waste increases every minute. Put all those spent fuel rods together and you'd get a pile as big as a football field and more than 20 feet tall. The solution of where to put it is years away and none of the previous solutions has worked. It's left us with a legacy. 10,000 tons of the most radioactive substance on Earth. High-level nuclear waste. Temporary storage facilities are wearing out. Sooner or later, we must find a permanent way to dispose of it.
We are accustomed in this country to act only in times of crisis. There's no time to look around or wait. But with nuclear waste, when the crisis comes, it will be too late. Why stop them at all? Some bomb debris remains active for many years. Radiation can be harmful to the human body. Radiation burns, blistering skin, the rapid mutation of somatic cells, intense and quick nausea, your body basically exploding from the inside. And this is serious. But by limiting time, distance from the source, and shielding ourselves with barriers of certain substances, we can reduce the dangers of ionizing radiation to a degree. And how to combine those three things in a perfect combination has been the subject of a search since this was discovered, so that we could effectively and safely utilize a revolutionary power locked within the smallest portion of matter. The atomic age ushered in a newfound era of scientific inquiry and innovation, one that's continued through today. While there have been notable faults, recent developmental leaps in thorium salt reactors have produced beneficial energy output while creating near-zero waste with a half-life 5% the length of uranium. Unfortunately, it took us a long time to get to that innovation, and in doing so, we created a ton of dangerous waste we have to deal with in equally as innovative ways. How do we do that? Well, the first idea that got any real traction behind it was… bury it. So long as the waste is properly stored and left alone, it should, ostensibly, remain safe for us above ground. If those two criteria are met and maintained, the radioactivity of the waste should remain safely distanced from humanity and nature enough to prevent hazardous effects. Almost all of our nuclear waste is currently stored in a few type of places. Spent fuel rods are kept in huge vats of water where they cool and are eventually placed in large concrete and steel casks filled with inert gas at various coastal sites around the country. But the dry casks holding our high-level nuclear waste still need a much more permanent location. Located about 100 miles northwest of Las Vegas, Yucca Mountain is the most thoroughly researched site of its kind in the world. Since 1978, one of the main points of research into possible high-level nuclear waste disposal has been Yucca Mountain, 80 miles northwest of Las Vegas, Nevada. Yucca Mountain has an elevation of 2,000 feet. The repository would be at 1,200 feet, 500 feet above the water table. The rock around the repository would remain dry so groundwater contamination is less likely. There are no major rivers in the area, and the land is federally owned and guarded. The project hasn't gotten off the ground in all this time due to a variety of bureaucratic and political setbacks, along with hefty resistance from the public. And to be clear, I'm not entirely on board with it either, but I'm also not an expert, and that's not what this is about anyway, but anyway. The plan, if it ever gets off the ground, 
is waste would arrive at the repository packaged in steel canisters. The canisters would be lowered into cement-lined holes along more than 100 miles of underground tunnel. Once in place, each canister would be surrounded with crushed rock and cement. When full, the repository would contain 70,000 tons, enough to cover a football field 20 feet high, and the most radioactive mass on the planet. The government predicts that the structure will last 300 to 1,000 years, after which leaks will begin to reach the surrounding rock. The rock would need to contain these leaks, according to the Environmental Protection Agency, for a minimum of 10,000 years. But the 10,000-year standard is highly controversial. Many doubt it's long enough. Even if the site were to be safe enough to hold the waste instability for those 10 millennia, that alone controls for only the natural dangers. The issue then becomes, how do we ensure it's left alone? And not just in our lifetimes, but beyond, extending 300 generations into the future. That was the thought experiment posed to a group of semioticians, scientists, linguists, archaeologists, and anthropologists in the early 1980s, when the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Nuclear Waste Isolation formed the Human Interference Task Force, or HITF. The HITF was primarily concerned with coming up with plans for long-term communication, methods for sending messages that will outlast us, our children, their children, or even several generations after that, if possible. These materials stay hazardous for so long that the messages need to last way longer than anything humans have ever created before. 10,000 years at the very least. A lot of ideas were floated during the process, but the HITF realized one of the big hindrances to long-term communication was the nature of language itself. Language is not static. It changes and evolves, leaving certain words, symbols, even entire systems obsolete with time. How then to ensure a message of this magnitude would last? This is where the group starts to get kind of creative. 
At one point, several designs for hostile architecture were thought up. Have you seen those really malicious benches in public places with spikes on them or odd armrests stuck in the middle? Those are to prevent people without homes from resting there for long periods of time. It's a subtle, passive way of making that locale inhospitable to human settling. Now, imagine those spikes are 50 feet high and made of concrete, jutting out at all manner of angles, scattered across the desert. That was a landscape of thorns. Or imagine a huge granite blacktop in the middle of the desert surrounding the burial site, soaking up all of the solar energy and becoming extremely hot. This likely wouldn't end well. Some intrepid adventurers are going to be like, there has got to be something good in there. As Robert McFarland puts in his book, such aggressive structures might act as enticements rather than cautions, suggesting here be treasure rather than here be dragons. A few other non-written methods of communication were placing an image like Edvard Munch's The Scream nearby to communicate the horrors that would visit anyone who dared disturb the waste, breeding domestic cats with low levels of radioactivity that would glow and guard the region, and building a massive instrument that, when the desert wind blew through it, would play in D minor, which they claim to be universally the saddest. I don't know why, but it makes people weep instantly to play a. It's a horn It's very pretty. I'm fascinated by all of these ideas, not just because they are such moonshots but because this entire burial process feels like the closest thing humanity has come to a modern-day universal ritual of sacred internment. These deep geological repositories have been built by different states all over the world because no one has come up with anything better. We still only know one way to cope with the existential dread of our most dangerous, hubristic side effects. One member of the HITF proposed an idea to ensure the remembrance of the nuclear waste, and borrowed the more active, sacred methods from history rather than trying to create something entirely new and passive. If the warnings of danger are mostly just for humans, to ensure the remnants are not disturbed, why not leave the job of warning to humans? Thomas Sibiak, a Hungarian-American semiotician from Indiana University, proposed the establishment of a commission of experts who would be privy to the actual truth of the dangers of atomic radiation and charged with the supplementary aid of folkloristic devices to pass on into the short-term and long-term future the artificial ritual and legend of nuclear power. Essentially, Sibiak wanted to institute an order who would take it upon themselves to be the keepers of the sacred radiation, a sort of radioactive Jedi, or what he referred to as an atomic priesthood. More specifically, he wanted to establish a set of rituals, legends, stories and practices, essentially, that would last for at least three generations, he argued. 
Then, after our great-grandchildren were in charge, it would be adapted to once more fit the linguistic and semiotic norms of that time, so that the message itself wouldn't be lost. This would continually occur, he posited, with a meta-message demanding that the legends be passed on with each generation in what he called a folkloric relay system. Sibiok knew, just like today, myths get new meaning over time, some of which are abandoned as just stories, while others become integral to cultural practices, beliefs, faith, and more. He said, there is no assurance that future generations would obey the injunctions of the past. So he went even further, arguing the atomic priesthood would also be charged with the added responsibility of seeing to it that our behest, as embodied in the cumulative sequence of meta-messages, is to be heeded, if not for legal reasons, then moral reasons, with perhaps the veiled threat that to ignore the mandate would be tantamount to inviting some sort of supernatural retribution. Write these stories to scare people into thinking that if they don't follow it, they are beckoning not just a natural apocalypse, but an immorally earned punishment from a higher power. You can see why he chose a priesthood as the order to model this group after particularly clearly with this in mind. He argued for a synthetically crafted elite caste of society that would, he admits, lay a false trail to steer the uninitiated away from the hazardous site by accumulated superstition. We're gonna lie to you and say you have godlike powers buried at this holy site, so you stay away. And this was a public document that he suggested this in. It's important to note that this idea was not picked by the Human Interference Task Force as actionable, and Sibiak only formally proposed it in his own separate individual report, and later elaborated on it in his book, I Think I Am a Verb. The group actually drove forward work in adopting international symbols for radioactive waste that we still see today. However, that doesn't mean the atomic priesthood never came about. Science fiction author Arsene Darnay published multiple short stories in the mid-1970s about an order of plutonium priests who keep radioactive waste as a sacrament. Walter M. Miller Jr.'s 1959 novel, A Canticle for Leibowitz, won the Hugo Award for science fiction and includes an order of monks who preserve the sum of the world's knowledge after nuclear fallout. And Isaac Asimov wrote of an atomic priesthood-esque temple of scientism built out of a refurbished nuclear power station in his Foundation series. And these tropes have lingered, their echoes resonating with Neal Stephenson's 2008 novel Anathem, Brooke Bollander's The Only Harmless Great Thing, and the Fallout video game's Children of Adam characters. But the manifestations don't stop in fiction. There's an architect named Brandon Washington who proposed designs for a monastery for the hypothetical order, borrowing visual motifs from the hostile architecture of the HITF proposals, 
and combining it with the history of the Hanford, Washington nuclear waste site. The renderings are beautiful and explain how the building of the structure itself could be part of the evolving myth-making process that those a part of the order might take on. Glassblower and multidisciplinary artist Brian McGovern Wilson has created the Atomic Priesthood Project, an open-ended archive of materials, symbols, and rituals designed collaboratively amongst artists, designers, and craftsmen to expand conversations around human interactions with time and ecology. It includes initiation rites, tattoos and shrouds, even a set of vestments to be worn by proposed members of the priesthood with a lead shirt and staff, as well as the architectural designs for a four-mile-wide black concrete Penrose Monument to Nuclear Waste Disposal dubbed the Black Stone Rose. And while these examples are artistic and are likely not perceived as practical proposals, that does not mean the spirit and practical goals of the atomic priesthood have not organically emerged through lots of groups, varying in their methods and motivations. You could make the argument that Sibiak was, in a roundabout way, successful in creating grand, folkloric, symbolic methods to tell the world of the dangers of nuclear waste. You could claim J. Robert Oppenheimer and the other Manhattan Project scientists were, after their work and the subsequent founding of the Bulletin of Atomic Energy, the facilitators of a distinctly symbolic signifier of eschatology, the Doomsday Clock. The media produced by the U.S. government to prepare residents for nuclear war similarly anoints the civil defense workers who would warn of an oncoming atomic blast with such duties, with imagery that can only be described as rapturous. Our civil defense workers and our men in uniform will do everything they can to warn us before enemy planes can bring a bomb near us. You may be in your schoolyard playing when the signal comes. That signal means to stop whatever you are doing and get to the nearest safe place fast. Always remember, the flash of an atomic bomb can come at any time, no matter where you may be. One ministry, the Christophers, actually produced a handful of atomic films that would educate the public about the gift of nuclear energy and included claims like this. Yes, as you have seen by these pictures, atomic energy can be a blessing. God has put this enormous power in our hands. He meant it to be used as our servant, not as our master, for the benefit of mankind, not for his destruction. Let it be used in the ways of God rather than the ways of the devil. On July 28, 2012, three activists, including 82-year-old Catholic nun Sister Megan Rice, broke into the Y-12 National Security Complex in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, the only site devoted to the development and storage of weapons-grade uranium for the United States nuclear arsenal. 
Bearing only bolt cutters, cans of spray paint, and a bottle of human blood, they got through four barbed wire fences, threw human blood on the walls, spray-painted anti-war slogans, and took hammers to concrete and the so-called Fort Knox of uranium. They acted as members of the Transform Now Plowshares movement, a Christian pacifist anti-nuclear weapons movement. They take their name from a passage in the book of Isaiah, chapter 2, verse 4. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. In a roundabout way, tallying all of this up, seeing the way it's permeated culture and art and language, it almost feels like Sibiak succeeded in instituting the atomic priesthood, even if he didn't at the time. There are scribes writing the divinely inspired scriptures, artists creating sacred spaces for the priesthood to dwell and serve in, missionaries going out to educate the world as to the danger and awesome might of the atom's radiance. And then there are people like Sergei Krasikov. Twelve times a year, Krasikov travels to the ruins of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in northern Ukraine. Stepping across the threshold and into the cordoned-off zone of alienation, he kneels beside the belly of the beast, a structure enclosing the notorious Reactor Number 4. Inside is a concrete structure known as the Sarcophagus, a cracked and crumbling 25-year-old shield built to temporarily stop radiation from leaking into the air surrounding Ground Zero for the disaster. Over the years, water from the rain and snow has found its way through the jagged concrete crevices and inside where it threatens groundwater contamination and the possibility of yet another vaporizing explosion. Krasikov's job is to, once a month, pump out the liquid that is collected from inside so that it does not touch a single spot, a sort of atomic holy of holies, dubbed the elephant's foot. The elephant's foot is a meter-wide sloping mass of corium, silicon dioxide, and other materials at the very center of reactor number four, weighing two tons and emitting 2,000 times the recommended yearly limit of radioactivity for workers in the nuclear industry. It riddles visitors with radiation, pummeling cells that turn to brittle burnt dust. Krasikov makes the trek because it pays his bills, and he'll continue to do so until he collects a pension when he claims, there will be enough work for my children and my grandchildren, since nobody knows what to do with what is inside. Krasikov 
את ארון העדות, והבדילה הפרוכת לכם בין הקודש ובין קודש הקודשים. ונתת את הכפורת על ארון העדות בקודש הקודשים. ושמת את השולחן מחוץ לפרוכת, ואת המנורה נוכח השולחן על צלע המשכן תימנה, והשולחן תיתן על צלע צפון. ועשית מסך לפתח האוהל, תכלת וארגמן ותולעת שני ושש מוסר, מעשה רוקם. ועשית למסך חמישה עמודי שיטים, וציפית אותם זהב, ובהם זהב, ויצקת להם חמישה אדני נחושת. I wrote that section of this story, I think, a full year ago. Krasikov's story was first published a decade before that in a New York Times article, a follow-up to which I have not been able to locate since. Krasikov had already been doing it for eight years at that point. I know not whether he still takes that train ride through the 18 miles of cordoned off landscape, the once residential industry town now overrun by mother unnature, the air heavy with extra neutrons. I've learned of others who have been inside the sarcophagus, including Alexander Kupnyi, whose video footage shows white flecks on otherwise undamaged magnetic tape, the invisible effects of radiation instantly made manifest. Kupnyi, who has been inside hundreds of times, said the air, thick with strontium-90, tastes metallic, while a friend of his who worked at a plant notorious for a plutonium-related disaster described its taste as sweet. In February of this year, Russian forces invaded Ukraine and subsequently took over the Chernobyl nuclear power plant site, with some reports stating that staff were held at gunpoint in order to keep operations stable and ongoing. However, the site was eventually abandoned by these troops, possibly for a number of reasons, including increased levels of radioactive activity possibly due to new trench-digging operations in contaminated soil by those Russian troops, leading many to seek treatment for acute radiation sickness. All of this made me reconsider the metaphor I chose to use. Maybe Krasikov and his ilk are less apprentices of Bezalel and more guard at the stone-sealed tomb watching the dead, or rather, turning their back on ascension. Either way, they make their regular pilgrimage, perform rite and ritual, and protect a sacred land from intrusion. It's a selfless intercession, one making priesthood an ill-fitting, or at least baggage-laden metaphor. The atomic priests, especially as Sibiak intended, were meant to be pseudo-secret keepers, seeding half-truths and legends of ill omen, warnings and exaggerations of great flood proportions. Take his concept of organized religion from that as you like. 
But more accurate, I think, is the idea proposed by the British poet Paul Farley, who instead elucidated our emergent solution, an order of nuclear bards, traveling, singing, rambling, decentralized truth-tellers. There's no need to, as Sibiok noted, lay a false trail. It isn't just a priesthood that has sprung up. It's an entire faith system. We have keepers, preachers, servants, and stewards. Sects have broken off, holy roller apocalypse cults warning of doom, and peaceful energy-focused technocrats. Apocryphal scribes and strictly regimented state-sponsored hierarchies who pontificate and speculate on proper disposal techniques. We've deemed our own Golgotha, established a holy sepulchre and fear that looking into the true face of the atom would tear us apart from the inside. Myths need not be synthetically crafted or planned out. They're organic and uncontrollable when given the time and freedom to thrive, such that any institution of one is, to me, bound to fail. The mutations caused by radioactivity are no match for the evolutionary power of human imagination or narrative. By our atomic nature, we are godmakers, kindling divine matter in our cells leaking them through the nib of a pen, or in waves radiating out with song or sword. I don't blame anyone for thinking that time is ticking, decaying into doom fuel. We have to confront the work of our hands. But beyond that penance, there is an entire other half of life. Το καταπέτασμα του ναού εσχίστη δύο από άνωθε νέου κάτω. Και η γη εσύστη, και επέτρε εσχίστησαν, και τα μνημεία ανεόχθησαν. Και πολλά σώματα των κεκοιμημένων Αγίων ηγέρθη, και εξελθώντε εκ των μνημείων μετά την έγερσην αυτού, εισήλθον ει την Αγίαν πόλην και ενεφανίστησαν πολλοί. Ο δε εκατόνταρχο και οι μεταυτού τηρούνται στον Ιησούν. Ιδώντες των σεισμών και τα γενόμενα, εφοβήθησαν σφόδρα λέγοντες «Αληθώς Θεού Υιός είναι τους». Ήσαν δε εκεί και γυναίκες πολλές από μακρόθεν Θεούς. Kohanim et Aron 
ויסוקו הקרובים על הארון ועל בתיו מלמעלה, ויעריכו הבתים, ויראו ראשי הבתים מן הקודש על פני הדביר, ולא יראו החוצה, ויהיו שם עד היום הזה. אין בארון רק שני לוחות האבנים, אשר הניח שם משה בחורב, אשר כרת אדוני עם בני ישראל בצאתם מארץ מצרים. ויהי בצאת הכהנים מן הקודש, והענן מלא את בית אדוני. ולא יכלו הכהנים לעמוד לשרת מפני הענן, כי מלא כבוד אדוני את בית אדוני. אז אמר שלמה, אדוני אמר לשכון בערפל, בנו בניתי בית זבולך, מכון לשבטך עולמים. You Only Guide Me By Surprise is written, produced, and edited by me, Landry Ayers. Thanks for listening. After such a heavy and metallic, almost industrial episode, I felt I needed to get out into the fresh air and give myself a bit of a refresh. So I'm sitting on a, a hill covered in grass and made of stone in the middle of my apartment. apartment complex, watching the sun begin to set, and the leaves are all really beautiful, all kinds of colors, umber and amber and vibrant greens and pine needles, some of them have already died, and uh, it's just a really beautiful moment to refresh. <laughs> This episode was something I started over a year ago. Um, And I didn't think I really had much original to say once I started researching it because I found all of these people whose work I really admire had already talked about and had found interesting all of the things that I found interesting and wanted to talk about. But I revisited it and I liked some of the things that I was beginning to say and I didn't want it to stop me like it has stopped me so much before. So I picked it back up and I'm, I'm really glad uh, with the way it turned out and... Uh, I hope you enjoy it. Um, if you did, I highly recommend Robert McFarlane's book, Underland, A Deep Time Journey, for a sort of meditative, globe-spanning adventure about the world beneath our feet. The 99% Invisible podcast episode, 10,000 Years, which is produced by an all-star team of some of my favorite podcasters, I realize now looking at the credits, including Matt Keelty, Sam Greenspan, Katie Mingle, Avery Truffleman, and Roman Mars, all of whom I really look up to as a producer. Um, as well, you should also check out the referenced audio documentary by the poet Paul Farley, which is aptly called The Nuclear Priesthood, and you can find that on BBC Radio 4, and the Seriously podcast feed. Once again, thanks for listening, and uh, you'll hear more from me soon.